Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. We are talking about a topic that is very, very important to all of us, unless you're a vegetarian or a vegan and you never eat meat, and I know that most of us do. So this is a show that reaches out to every family uh, in America, except those who, who might be uh, on the vegetarian side. But let me tell you, for those of us who are carnivores, this is vital to know about. You might be reading in the news about superbugs and drug-resistant illnesses that uh, people are having in different parts of the world and in different parts of the country here in the U.S. And you might be wondering, where does this come from? How does this happen? Well, today we're going to talk about some of the answers to that, and it lies in the fact that there's so much low-level antibiotics being infused into our food supply through livestock feed and through injections into the animals that will ultimately become our meat. In fact, 80% of all the antibiotics sold in the U.S., guess what? They're going to be used in livestock production. And it's typically just to make animals grow faster and to kind of compensate for the crowded and often unsanitary living conditions that they're in. And in fact, just in 2001, four times the amount of antibiotics was sold for use on chickens, pigs, cows, and other food animals than we used for human medicine. And one of the upshots of this use of of antibiotics in our feed livestock is that they can actually start to breed these superbugs. These low levels of antibiotics that they're fed and injected with simply kill, you know, little bacteria and allow the superbugs, the drug-resistant bugs to grow and they are spread to human beings, not just in the food we consume, but also sometimes uh, recently, I think it was the last couple of years, there was a listeria outbreak uh, in some produce. It was actually in, in vegetation and it was traced back to a Truck that had been driving through a livestock farm where these low levels of antibiotics were used and the superbugs were spread from the tires driving through that farm and near a lettuce uh, a growing patch. So this is a serious issue. And today we have a couple of rock stars uh, in this on this issue who are going to help us dissect this issue and talk about some of the alternatives and things that every consumer should know. We have Russ Kremer. He is a a recent recipient of the Growing Green Award from the Natural Resources Defense Council. A lot of you know them as NRDC. Um, and he does things differently on his farm, and we're going to talk to him. We've also got Dr. Jason Newland. He's the Medical Director of Patient Safety and Systems Reliability Director um, at the Children's Mercy Hospitals and Clinics in Kansas City, Missouri. So we've got some folks from the heartland of America who are here with us on Go Green Radio to talk about this very serious issue. Welcome to Go Green Radio, Russ and Dr. Newland. So glad to have you both on the show. Thanks for having me. Really, really, I've never been termed a uh, rock star before. I think as a pediatric ID person, my kids would be uh, would not agree with that. But I'm going to take it. <laughs> take it. Take it. I'm flattered as well. It's an honor and privilege to be on the air with with you, Jill, and and Jason as well. Well, thanks. You know, Russ, let's start with you. When you first began hog farming, what was the conventional wisdom that you were taught? What was going on in the industry in terms of housing and feeding and antibiotic treatment of pigs? Well, you know, when I uh, was 
coming back from college around 1980, um, the, the, the pork industry is basically at a, at a crossroads, ready to, to shift in, in, in direction in a major way. And, and that is when I was, you know, at least fortunate to, to have grown up in the 60s and the 70s where, you know, the hog farming was, was basically, um, it was done by multitudes of farmers, you know, independent freeholders of the land. Uh, in fact, in Missouri and, and, and before 1980, there were 40,000 40, farms in Missouri that had pigs on them. And they were considered like the mortgage lifters, you know, an independent family farm system. We had multitudes of places to, to sell our our products and um, in, in, in terms these independent farm families reinvested into community and we had a thriving rural economy uh, but pigs you know, like I say we're, we could always depend on pigs to, to make some money mm-hmm. um, most of the pigs were, were grown in, in smaller uh, lots and, and on pastures and wood lots etc and so and uh, they started to, to get into housing about that time. And so when I, when I, you know, like the crossroads in the 1980s was the industry was starting to shift into a direction of more consolidation, more concentration, um, in a vertically integrated system that would be, you know, owned by a major global multinational corporation. And, and so that the housing changed. And, and then in the, the basically the size of the operations, um, they were starting to become uh, production contracts where where farmers that own the land and would pay for the buildings, but would have ticks placed on them by by these large companies who would also control the feed and, and how they the pigs were actually managed. And so the, the size and the scale uh, became uh, increased. Uh, local independent markets uh, started to diminish. Um, Access into this type of agriculture became, you know, very limited because, uh, you know, if you wanted to enter in this type of agriculture, you, you often had to come up with a million dollars. And so, more concentrated, um, the, the, the buildings uh, would house a lot of pigs um, because this style of agriculture was was kind of dependent upon, you know, razor thin margins. In other words, it's about production efficiencies and bottom line type of results and so the integrators required that you know each farm have a lot of hogs you know, instead of mm-hmm. a, a few hundred hogs you had to have tens of thousands of hogs and so but, but also at this time um, and i remember getting you know absorbed in this as well that the the industry was was pushing toward using uh, antibiotics in low non uh, subtherapeutic levels as a means of promoting growth um, for better feed efficiencies and also to curb, uh, you know, some, some chronic infections you may have on the farm. And, uh, you know, we as farmers, even as independent farmers, would, would go to the what we call feeder meetings where the pharmaceutical companies would would host a nice fried chicken dinner and, <laughs> and afterwards, you know, pitch their wares. And it, it, it was really, you know, it was, you know we, we drank the Kool-Aid. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the bottom line showed that you know we could make more money, and, and you know I, I I contend that it was basically because we had we're starting to see the problems with more confined animals that that this use of the subtherapeutic antibiotic at least short term uh, did show some positive results and and did improve our our bottom line on account of it. So uh, you know that's like I say we we embraced that and um, and even us independent farmers uh, um, began to. To establish you know, confined buildings and, and get larger and, and basically, you know, you might say have more dominion over our animals, and uh, felt that we could control them more and, and actually have more on a concentrated area. 
Mm-hmm. And were the advantages that were touted to this type of housing and the antibiotic use, was it primarily an economic benefit that was touted or were there any other benefits that were uh, put forward as something that, you know, would be attractive to hog farmers? Yeah, I mean, the number one was, was economics. It was, you know, about most of the, the people that embraced this style were, were people that liked raising pigs and, and had a passion for raising pigs, and, and it was touted as a way to, to be able to grow more, you know, more on your land and, uh, and, uh, and, and then enhance and, and, and make more money uh, to focus. I mean, at this point in time, this is when, when specialization really was driven home as a as a, a, a reason to go to this style because you can, you know, if you if you like raising hogs and, and heck on these these uh, this di- differentiated or diversified agricultural system, focus mm-hmm. your time on hogs and things that you can do well. And so it wasn't just the economics; it was that hey, you know, you can you can just do the things on a farm, the vocation that you like, raising hogs, and don't worry about anything else. So besides mm-hmm. the, the economic part, I, I think that was a, a very alluring as well. How prevalent are these confined animal feed operations or, or housing operations in, in American meat production? Is this the majority? Uh, is it half and half? I mean, how, how prevalent is this style of, of not just hog farming, but, you know, other meat production? Uh, it, you know, it's, it's the vast majority. Uh, in a, the, the pigs that are, are captive, and I'll say that in captive means that, you know, that, that are controlled by a vertically integrated system, Controlled by you know a large entity that that controls the whole value chain, uh, probably between you know eighty to ninety percent of the the pigs mm-hmm. in, in North America are are grown that way and, and in that system, meaning that you know even the, the prices uh, that that you know the, the market price that you're going to get is already preset, mm-hmm. and so all of these in you know, a controlled and uh, marketing system like that are are in you know confined animal feeding operations so that. Mm-hmm. About control, you know, by more so than efficiency, so that you know large companies can then negotiate with large food retailers, for instance, or, mm-hmm. you know, that you have a dependable large source of pigs coming into your marketplace. So, from an economic standpoint, this all just sounds like great supply chain management. But what was your experience like, Russ, when you adopted this method of hog, hog farming? Um, what did you see in terms of the pig's health, and what was your your daily work life like? Did you uh, did it live up to the promise that you were given at these you know fancy chicken dinners by the the companies that that sold their wares to you? Well, you know, I I have to say that coming out of college, I I was the one that had to convince my father to go into a style of, of swine farming like this, and we we built the confinement buildings, and and uh, because I I had in, in a, a more sustainable method, and so reluctantly he agreed. Uh, and so, you know, I worked it hard and wanted to make it work. Um, so, but after uh, after a few years in this type of a system, uh, what, what happened was my, my hogs became chronically ill and had illnesses uh, that I had to deal with on a daily basis, um, ranging from uh, diarrhea problems to respiratory problems, swollen joints to, to even reproductive failures. And I, as hard as I worked, and believe me, I, I took it to heart. Um, and I, but I'd have to treat pigs uh, on a daily basis. I, 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 had, I hadn't done this before, but I actually ordered and got one of these pistol grip 
syringe Jason that, that holds about 50 cc of medicine that's like a gun wow. so that I could be more proficient and efficient uh, doing my job and and one day I mean I came to a realization that when I was treating these pigs you know I, I was feeding you know the, the sub-therapeutic antibiotics but with this chronic illness I had to therapeutically treat about half of the pigs every day and and we mark these pigs with a colored crayon um, that's, that's, that, that you can easily see in bright colors. And so one day I came in and noticed that some of my pigs had as many as seven different polka dots on them from these, these colors. And, and I realized it was a sickening feeling that, you know, that, that these pigs were, were dependent upon, you know, these drugs because I had created something, something very, very bad here. Mm-hmm. And it, it didn't, it wasn't fun anymore. I mean, I, uh, I, I grew up, uh, I started raising pigs when I was five years old and I lived mm-hmm. with the pigs and I loved them and I played with them and I, and, uh, it made me happy to be around them. But this was just a, a, a sickening term of events where I, I began to dread to go into that building to, to see the, the illnesses and the sicknesses. That's, that's really sad. You know, I'd like to ask you, Dr. Newland, um, when you were in medical school, did you guys talk about, the connection between food production, how food is produced, and its impact on human health? Was that something that you were trained in in medical school? Uh, no, we are not uh, trained in uh, you know, how food is developed. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, I think you know, the medical schools will say you know, we have so much stuff to teach around um, you know, human science and human health and you know, how the heart works and then what are the diseases that occur that occur in the heart that they don't spend that time and not only that but you know my big focus in my career has been on just antibiotic use primarily and just in the human in human medicine and i would contest that they spend you know a couple of hours in in talking about these vital drugs and so when they young doctors get into the workforce, they haven't really been even educated the best way to use them. Um, and they're not so-called regulated in that respect. That so, I mean, I know, you know, this show today is about the agriculture industry, um, but we've been trying to work on the medical, uh, the human health industry on controlling these antibiotics so that we are making an impact there as well. Mm-hmm. I will tell you that I had no idea about what went on in food production until about three years ago. So, I mean, I, I, I told a group last week that I was embarrassed to have to admit that to people. And, and I, don't, I don't think, I mean, I think I'm a, I try to keep track of what's going on, and I, and I really care about this, but I don't think people know about this. I don't think people realize the, the amount of antibiotics that are used at these low levels in, in animals that are being raised for um, our for what we eat, mm-hmm. and it's amazing. It's amazing to me that this has been able. And, and what's even more staggering to me um, is if you look at the history of antibiotic use overall. Mm-hmm. So I will really nerd out on you guys right now, but you know, <laughs> penicillin was discovered in 1928 by Alexander Fleming. We all know that. Most people know that. Oh yeah, Alexander Fleming. You know, they can say that. At least people in my industry, you know, in medicine, say, oh yeah, that's Alexander Fleming. What people don't realize is the next thing is we didn't really use it in human medicine until 1941. Well, so then that was in World War II, and some people say, well, that was really important for our, our efforts in World War II because 
We had our GIs come back that would get, have a wound, get infected. We give them penicillin, we would treat them. So you're like, well, why am I talking to you guys about World War II and 1941? Well, farmers started using antibiotics in around 1946 in animals. I mean, this has been going on since the 50s, you know, even more so as this, you know, this industry has developed. And, and as a matter of fact, the FDA came out and ruled in 1978, I think 1977 or 1978, that people should start to probably voluntarily not do this. And it's continued. So as crazy as it is, this has been going on almost as long as we've had antibiotics. Wow. And how do you, how do you look at the disparity between what the medical community is doing to try and regulate antibiotic use and what's happening in agriculture? How, you know, how can we, you know, judge and balance what's going on here? I mean, is, do you feel like as a result of the medical community saying, let's rein this in a little bit in humans, that maybe that meant a drop in sales for some companies that, you know, need to sell these products. And so then they found the, the ag use convenient. I think that, um, I, I think that that's, I don't know if it's, that, that's necessarily linked. I think that they've been pretty happy and I'm speculating here. I'm thinking that they're pretty happy that, uh, we haven't maybe caught on to what has been going on and that we've just been in, the human medicine side. Now, now, with that being said, like I do need that the pharmaceutical companies to develop some new antibiotics. Mm-hmm. And why is that? Well, it's because we have such bad resistance, mm-hmm. and we have such bad bacterial resistance that, in my, I don't feel like I've had that long of a career. I've been, you know, been in. I've been a MD since 2000, but I've been a pediatric infectious disease doctor for almost seven years. But the fact that I've been that I can say that I've taken care of a child that I couldn't treat with an antibiotic because they had such a resistant infection and they died from it. Mm-hmm. That's crazy to think, right? I don't think my dad, who's a physician back in nineteen eight in the 1980s and 90s, would ever even thought that that was possible mm-hmm. to go back to a time where you didn't have an antibiotic. Well, talk about an instance like that where a patient has had health problems that were traced back to or or you know, potentially linked to, I'm not sure how definitive the studies are, yeah. to these farming practices of yeah. using low-level antibiotics um, to to feed and treat the animals. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, it's a great question. I think it's a, it's a question that's posed a lot, especially from the agriculture industry. Well, so what if we're using it? Does it even matter to, uh, to, these, to the children that you take care of? Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, there have been a number and a number of examples of a bacteria called salmonella. And yep. salmonella is found in, you know, poultry and in, in, in meat, um, and if it's not processed right. And what they've found is that some people have contracted salmonella that are resistant to some of these common antibiotics. And these are people that have never, you know, that, that the only way they could have gotten that resistant is that they were exposed um, from the animal industry. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the other interesting one, um, I, I always think it's fascinating because I'm learning more and more about this every day. Um, you know, so Staphylococcus aureus or Staph aureus, many uh-huh. people out there say, I have no idea what this guy's talking about. But if I say MRSA, if I say MRSA, most people are like, oh, yeah, now I know MRSA, right? It, it's this thing. It can cause skin infections. It can make people really sick, and it can actually kill people. Uh-huh. Well, there it has been well known. It's there's actually livestock associated Staph aureus strains that are just specific to livestock. 
And you can have the, the farm, farm workers can actually get these skin infections from these staph aureuses, and they have MRSA from that. There's MRSA. And then most recently, they found um, a staph aureus. It thankfully hasn't developed resistance yet, but they found the transmission of that staph aureus into the bloodstream, a bloodstream infection of someone that wasn't anywhere near farms. Wow. So now, you know, so we're lucky, right? I feel like I'm like, wow, we're lucky. We, it's not the resistant version, but if it can get into a human and it is a livestock associated, well, the next step is it gets one of the resistant ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's driven by, why do we have resistance? It's driven by our antibiotic use. And if we're just putting it low level, sub-therapeutic for non-sick animals, um, that's 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 horrible. That's wrong, and we we can't do that. And I I think it was Russ. I, I really I, your story was so compelling, and and hearing you say that, you know, I started doing this. I started doing the low level antibiotics, and then I saw that my my animals were actually sicker. And so then I had to start using more systemic therapy. I had to start giving them the shots, right? Because people like me, I'm not against treating sick animals. I mean, if there's a sick animal, I say treat them. But it's now that we've created the conditions, oh, I'm using low-level feeds, I've crowded them, and now, but now they're getting sicker. I mean, that's all we're doing is driving more and more antibiotic use that should be eliminated. Russ, talk to us about what it was for you personally that made you start to say, hey, this system that I convinced my dad to create isn't what I want to do. I've got to change something up. Talk to us about that pivotal moment for you. Okay, there's a, a, a couple of things that led up to the, I guess, the epiphany, so to speak. And uh, I'd actually been, uh, I'm a past president of, of our, our pork trade uh, association, Missouri Pork Producers Association, back in the, about during this time that I was going through this, 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 this issue with my pigs getting chronically ill. And at that time, there had there had been someone uh, that had been had had died from the um, resistant salmonella that was traced back to beef. I can't remember exactly what year that was, but that made me think. And I remember standing up uh, and saying that, "Hey, we you know we as the pork industry ought to you know we we, we need to do something about this. I mean, we need to look into this. If we say that, hey, we're going to have more judicious use of antibiotics and." I remember getting a very cold reception about that and in <laughs> my way, and, uh, and but but I kept pondering about that, and then and then as I the other thing that led up to this is I I noticed whenever we have these sick pigs or you have a, 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 a dead pig, you you take it to a veterinarian or a, a university veterinarian clinic and you have the pig you know a post mortem inspection, and uh, where they you know they they look at the physiology the physical things that happen, but also uh, they do a serology test in which they they match the the pathogen that causes this illness uh, to the different array of antibiotics that might be um, that might react to it. And I kept seeing my reports show this word resistant, resistant to penicillin, resistant to amoxicillin, resistant to oleomycin, and the list went on down the line. And then I finally noticed that some of my reports there might be just one antibiotic that would be effective against the disease in my animal. Wow. And, uh, and I said, wow, what the heck? It used to be a, a new generation drug, and you go out and buy it, and then you talk to other farmers who had the same problem. They said, oh, yeah, we just use this new, new drug. And it, it culminated in the spring of 1989 when, when, when I actually had a near-death experience with this issue when a, a boar hog uh, gored me in the knee, 
and uh, I, I got an infection that went to the doctor to have it treated, and because my my leg after a week began the, the swelling about you know about fifty percent of its normal size more, and I did start to get alarmed. I usually don't as a farmer kid you, you usually don't worry too much about injuries, but I did start to worry about this one, and that's so the docs said, uh, hey, no problem, you know, you know, it's a, it's a strep infection, and they said, you know, treat it with penicillin, and, you know, you'll, you'll be healed in a little while. Well, that little while went, you know, went into a couple of weeks, and uh, still, uh, it was getting worse, my condition, and they prescribed uh, other things, such as, you know, erythromycin, amoxicillin, two different types of tetracycline, or, or, uh, yeah, uh, streptomycin, and I think with six different antibiotics and wow. no avail, um, my condition got worse. And after three and a half weeks or so, uh, a doc had started, uh, they started getting systemic. I could feel it breaking off into my circulatory system and my heart would palpate and I'd get foggy and nearly pass out. And at that point in time, uh, my doctor <laughs> agreed with me that I was about to die. Oh, and so I, I credit myself, I guess, for saving my life. I went back to my serology reports on my hogs, and I said, Doc, I showed him, I think, I think I've got this disease. Uh, it's, the same, it's the same type of strep that my pigs have, and there's only one injectable antibiotic that's been curing it, and it's in the cephalosporin family. Uh-huh. It, was a, it was a drug uh, on the livestock side, Jason, was called Maxell. And so my doctor agreed. Um, my serology tests were were done and showed that yes, indeed, I had this this same condition. And uh, so they immediately put me in a hospital and gave me an IV of this human form of cephalosporin. And um, it, within a couple of days, I was I was cured and uh, <laughs> I was healed. And so. Um, so so that was my that was my dear death, death experience that woke me up from all this, and, and then after that, I, I made this complete transformation on the hog operation. What wow. did you do? Sorry, what I had to you? comment. That was crazy. Wow. Wow. <laughs> no, I love it, Jason, the enthusiasm. And, and I, I would say the same thing. That is pretty remarkable. So what did you change, Russ? Tell us how your operation was transformed. Okay. <clears throat> well, 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 I started my plan lying in the hospital. First of all, i got to tell you that this, 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 this remorse, little darkness came over me where I wanted to you know, I actually wasn't, I wasn't so much scared for my life, but I was remorseful that I had put this stuff into the food system and was actually selling my breeding stock uh, to my neighbors and my friends. And I said, I'm probably eating this crap. And uh, so so after I got over the notion of, of, of running away or moving to Africa or quitting pork production altogether, my friends kind of talked me down that cliff. And, and I thought of the course where, I followed through <clears throat> where I would exterminate, uh, you know, my, my disease hogs. I would start with brand new clean breeding stock on clean, clean grounds in a new style of, of agriculture that included, um, you know, more humane conditions, less crowded conditions for my hogs, uh, access to the outdoors and with deep bedded systems, but above all, um, um, no antibiotic usage. No sub-therapeutic antibiotic usage, no uh, no hormones, no chemicals, a, a diet that's made up of, of um, whole grains, naturally grown, and including fiber. And so I, and I also kind of plotted a, a nutritional program for my hogs that were, you know, would likely treat healthy humans. Mm-hmm. And so I, I basically 
and I, and I still have my clean stock. I, I use more of the heirloom or heritage breeds that had you know resistance, so that were that could that, that had the ability to thrive in more natural conditions, and and moved to a clean farm that I bought from my my great aunt shortly out of college. College that was more wooded and had hillsides with all these natural barriers, mm-hmm. and just good, just a good pristine environment, coupled with tender loving care, and um, you know, that's that was my. My new course of action. Russ, you rock. You I just want to rock, say that. that, that that's awesome. pretty amazing. And we're going to be taking a quick commercial break here in just a moment, but one word answer. Was it easy or was it hard to make a profit on a business model like that? Easy. <laughs> All right. We're, we're going to find out more right after this, folks. Don't go away. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Our guests today are Russ Kremer, who is a hog farmer in Missouri. He is known in some circles as the Pope of Pork, and he's telling us about his operations and how he's changed from what is predominantly the industry standard, which is confined animal feeding operations, i.e. crowding them all in to the extent that you have to give them antibiotics to keep them healthy, uh, to a much more natural, much more healthy environment for the hogs that he is raising that will end up being our meat. Um, so I know that a lot of folks are thinking, wow, 
this kind of antibiotic use is currently being used. It has been used for a long time. And I never realized that this low-level antibiotic use in feed for livestock that will become meat and uh, just, you know, using injectables, you know, con- continuing to, to give sick animals more and more and more antibiotics could have an impact on human health the way that Dr. Newland um, is talking about in the way that these superbugs can be transmitted to humans. And, you know, honestly, I, I've got three kids. My pediatrician never helped me understand this connection between the way that our meat is produced and human health. Um, Dr. Newland, I'm going to ask you, what can the medical community be doing? What should the medical community be doing in order to support uh, the kind of action that Russ has taken to create a healthier environment and healthier meat um, for consumers. What can be done? We, as a medical community, have to do more of just knowing about the issue first off. I mean, I mentioned this earlier that I, I didn't know about this till 2009. And so I, I take it as a part of my personal responsibility to be out there, um, to be telling our pediatricians, and not only our pediatricians, but our you know our internal medicine, our family medicine docs, that this is what is being, this is what is going on um, to raise these animals that we eat, and that this is basically we are um, supporting by buying this type of food um, these people on the way that they're um, growing the growing or raising and, and providing us the meat that we like to eat, and so if we really, I mean, we uh, last week I had the great opportunity um, of going to Washington, D.C. with a group known as the Super Moms Against Superbugs. Um, <laughs> it was it. awesome. I mean, it was fabulous. There was, there was physicians, there was moms that, had, that either they had been infected with a resistant organism or, I mean, try, try losing a child to, to mm. a resistant infection, which mm. were some of the moms there. Try listening to those stories and realizing that, wow, this could happen you know, beyond just here. And, and then it was chefs. We had, you know, some rock star chefs that were there, like um, um, Rock Harper, who was one uh, Hell's Kitchen that was there. And, and we were all there to go up and um, to, to our congressman and say, hey, this is what's going on um, there. And, and we need the medical community to be involved doing that as well. Uh, and, and people like Russ, I mean, we had farmers there as well to do that. And, and it takes... Um, and I think it's going to take us to to one to stop buying this food um, mm-hmm. that 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 has antibiotics in it. We need to support you know the whole foods of the world that don't have the antibiotics in them. We need to be the big time supporters because I don't think we know how fast Congress works. We know how fast our <laughs> political system works. That's not going to get it done unless we want to wait twenty twenty five years. Yeah. And in my opinion, too late. Right. Way well, too I late. know we won't even have antibiotics. Even, you know, other supermarkets, like I, I shop at Safeway uh, and in their stores, they have even Safeway brands uh, of, of meat products that say no antibiotics yep. used. So you don't even have to go to the most expensive or highest end frou-frou stores, although I love those as well, uh, you know, when I'm splurging a little. But when you're on a budget like most of America and right. you're looking for something, th- this is happening, you know, in our grocery chains as well. 
Russ, you've done so much more than just simply run your own pork business under Heritage Foods brands and Heritage Acre Farms and and Fork in the Road. Um, You've been, like you said, active in the Missouri Farmers Union, active with the Ozark Mountain Pork Co-op. I think you even were the founder of that. Talk to our listeners about your work with these organizations and also how other farmers are reacting to your work. What's happening in your world, Russ? Well, I guess I, I, I do feel a, a sense of obligation, and I, I have gotten a, a second chance in life. And one of the things that I always vowed to do uh, when I was kind of rediscovering how to farm is to, to, to not only evangelize, but also demonstrate, educate, and, and, and create models. And I, I, I kind of term what we're, what we're doing, uh, and you're exactly right, to Jason, you're right too that you can't you know wait for legislation. You got to go out and prove to the world that 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 there's a better model, and, and I call it a model of hope. And uh, you know that that's actually been successful. And so, organizing farmers is something that I've I've always um, been, been proud to do. Actually, we, we actually was the first president of the Missouri Farmers Union back in we started that in '99, and and the Ozark Mountain Pork Co-op kind of started shortly after that. Um, we're you know, basically, we got like-minded farmers. You know, farmers, you know, overall want to do the right thing. Oftentimes, we we, we don't know, or we kind of get we slide down a, a trend, or we're so passionate about farming that that, for instance, a, a lot of my friends have had to had gone into a, a vertically integrated system. Well, you know, the the groups that that I I started basically were like-minded farmers that. Not only did they want to do things the right way, but they also wanted to be able to invite a son or daughter into a, a transgenerational opportunity, you might say. Uh, and so, so we, we talked about how to do something profitable. I had been over to, to Europe to study for a little bit in, in, uh, in 1999 on, and saw some demonstrations or some models of, of pork co-ops and some antibiotic-free type production and brought that model back to the United States and, and started, for instance, the, the co-op. And so we got a following. I mean, in, 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 you know, in 1999, I'll have to say it wasn't easy. Um, it was after 1998 when we had this fallout of, of hog prices. Um, the industry, because it became so consolidated, you know, found it in their, their heart to, to, to pay us 7 and $0.08 cents per pound for, for, for hogs, uh, Back in, 19, in the fall of '98, which were way below Depression era type prices, and so mm-hmm. we, as a group of farmers that wanted to raise hogs, knew in our hearts that if if we were to, to continue raising hogs this way, that that we had to create our own opportunities. And so the you know so so it got a following. 34 grew to 52. Today we have about 92 farmers that in our network that are are supplying. Um, Work through the co-op and through the Heritage Foods brand and, and, and others. I get calls uh, every day, every week from farmers that want to get into the system, even some, some medium-sized farmers that, that raise as many as ten to 15000 per year that, that want to learn how to raise hogs without antibiotics. Mm-hmm. But that being, being said, you still have the resistance. I mean, it's it's like, uh, you know, there, there's even a coalition of farmers that, you know, that have band together to, to fight against, uh, you know, taking any of the antibiotics away, so to speak. Uh, even the universities at time have told me that, that what I do is, is harmful to the industry because it makes the rest of the, the pork look bad, that type of thing. <laughs> and, and I contend that it, it's very helpful to the industry. But, but that being said, I'm, I'm very encouraged. Uh, when I go to the universities, for instance, um, 
to talk to the rural kids who would love to come back home if there's an economic opportunity there. And I tell them about, you know, our ability to, to, to finance uh, um, uh, people and because even with the Farmers Union, we even had created a, a, a credit union to, to fund young people and new type farmers. That I within a couple of years, they're able to enjoy a profit center that's going to make them, you know, thirty to forty thousand dollars a year. That gets their attention, and, and that gets gets a, even a greater following for this kind of agriculture. I love it. And and what have you seen, Russ, in terms of you know your experience and your work life now, in terms of the healthier pigs, but also the quality of the meat? I'm starting to salivate just a little bit. I'm a bacon lover, and uh, <laughs> in a big way. Um, I feel it coming today, BLT or something. But at any rate, um, you know, t- talk to us about the quality of the meat that you're producing. Well, yeah, that's exciting to talk about. Uh, you know, not only you know, it's our goal to, to produce and, and create the not not the safest, healthiest, best tasting pork on this planet. And uh, you know, we found that that these these happy, healthy hogs. And I, I do invite you to come down to my farm, and you'll you'll get that notion that these pigs are so curious, social, but but very very happy and and healthy that it makes amazing meat. And uh, you know, chefs. We'll, we'll say that, you know, we talk about the notorious chefs throughout the country that can t- taste the difference between hogs raised in an environment like this and without antibiotics that, that the flavor is so much better. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, compared to the industrial model, and I attribute that to like, like three things that I always say. It's about, it's about the breed, the breed of the hogs. We use more of the, the heirloom type of breeding like our grandfathers used to use. The feed, um, that being with you know, natural grains and without the, the use of antibiotics and these weird byproducts they put in there. And, you know, by the way, we're, we're feeding uh, things, fiber sources such as flax and oats. That's actually changing the chemistry of the fat of the pork to make it not only flavorful and more juicy, but also more healthy with higher omegas. And then the, the need for, for tender loving care. And we mm-hmm. put those three things together and and, you know, the, the reward is when I'm at, a, for instance, a Whole Foods where we, we sell our pork and the, the customers say, I've never tasted such delicious pork. And, and the buzz is all throughout the store about how, how, mag- how differentiated, how magnificent this pork is. Mm-hmm. Dr. Newland, you recently penned an op-ed on this issue. And, and you, are, you are fired up about this issue, and I love it, and I hope it's infectious in a good way. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Not the kind of infectious we were talking about <laughs> during the first segment, <laughs> yeah. but in a good way. Share with our listeners, if you would, the views that you expressed in your op-ed and, and help our listeners understand where you stand as a medical professional on this issue. Yeah, you know, uh, thank you for letting me comment on that. You know, so it was in the um, Kansas City Star uh, two days ago, and you can you can Google it and find it online um, at KansasCityStar.com. Um, you know what I discussed was first off uh, a couple about a month or two ago, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, so the CDC in Atlanta. Uh, one of their uh, high-level people started calling out about the nightmare bacteria, and it was featured on CNN. And what this was referring to was uh, some resistant bacteria that we were starting to see in our hospital. Um, and these bacteria are to the point that we, can all, we only have really one other antibiotic that can treat um, patients. And so as that is the backdrop, and, and being that I'm a pediatric infectious diseases and take care of children, um, 
we, you know, the point of this uh, article is to say, hey, this is here. It's in human medicine. I have personally taken care of one child um, who died of a resistant infection I couldn't treat. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that, to, to, to be in a situation where you have someone that you cannot treat with an antibiotic, um, when you feel like you sh- should be able to save them, is, makes you feel helpless and it's uh, horrible. And you think about everything involved with that. Um, and when you say it shouldn't happen. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the other piece is that, you know, so people are like, well, have you been involved with, you know, some really resistant infections from what you've speculated is from overuse of antibiotics in the animal industry? And the answer to that is yes. Um, I'm sure Russ remembers the Joplin tornado. Uh, not as close, but we all in this part of the country remember that. Um, it will be two years ago um, in about a month. It was in May, end of May of uh, 2011. Devastating tornado, obviously destroyed much of Joplin. Um, we actually had two children um, transferred to our hospital that had ginormous, big, open wounds. Half of uh, one child's chest that had been opened up. Um, and it was an amazing, amazing experience just seeing these kids who had such horrible injuries but were, you know, survived that. But then they had infections. Um, because here they were, they had been thrown into the mud and the dirt of this area that we all know is rich in, you know, the agriculture industry is in this part of the country. That's what that's what we do here. Mm-hmm. Um, and we found in these kids who had never really been in the hospital, highly, highly resistant bacterial infections that we were using the last line antibiotics. I mean, literally, I don't have anything after some of these antibiotics mm-hmm. to treat these kids. And, and so the question is, well, do we have definitive proof that it came from them? No, but you've got to tell me why. Because we do know in human medicine that resistance is linked to overuse in the hospital setting, and we, we see that all the time. And, and so that, you know, and, I, and it, so this is 2011. You see these and you start thinking about, well, gosh, just a year ago I learned about the 30 million what, tons of, uh, you know, that are pounds of antibiotics that are used in the agriculture industry. And I'm like, hmm, I wonder why they have such resistance, right? We're using it all the time there. Mm-hmm. And, and to sit there and think, you know, I, I, Jill, you said you have three children. I have three kids. Um, and to think that, you know, when my kids are older, that there might not be common antibiotics to treat common conditions such mm-hmm. as pneumonia, right? Back in the 20s and 30s, if you got a severe pneumonia, there's a chance you were going to die from that, especially yeah. if you were a child. Now it's it's unheard of. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, why? Well, we have the technology, which is primarily the antibiotics, to do that. And then the last factor I think that's important. So it, beyond that is that you know we don't have new antibiotics coming down the pipe mm-hmm. for human medicine. Uh, in that fact, probably for even animal medicine. And and if that's the case, we have to do something about the pressure that's in, on these bacteria. And and that's what you know. That was kind of this hope. And and I think the big big piece of this is we have to do more of give, making the public aware and and making them understand that we can't go on like this or this wonderful medical system of treating infections. We're not going to have. We won't have, and it'll be sooner than we are we're ever expecting. Are you meeting with any resistance from other doctors or from the FDA? I mean, Russ has talked about some of the farmers and uh, some of the resistance that they have to his methodologies. Are you getting any backlash like that, Dr. Newland? Well, I love meats. I was fearful that the farmers of the world would 
have resistance. So I'm, I'm hoping that doesn't happen. But <laughs> in respect to um, my colleagues and other physicians, you know, I, I haven't met a lot of resistance there. I mean, I, you know, around around the Children's Mercy Hospital, you know, here I, I'm also the director of antimicrobial stewardship. So it's well known that if someone's using antibiotic and I don't think it's appropriate, I'm going to come talk to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, can I get resistance on that? Because they're like, oh man, here he goes again. Uh, yeah, a little. But when I bring it up in regards to the a- animal industry and what, and and they're like, really? Are you kidding me? I mean, for the most part, people will tell you, oh yeah, you know, I. I don't want to use those antibiotics. I try to use them appropriately. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that's in my own hospital. I think we still have a lot of work to do. And, you know, things like the uh, farm, you know, the pharmacies like CVS that has these, you know, urgent care type settings or the, the nurse practitioners and those sorts that are, you know, sometimes just hand out antibiotics. And I, don't, I think that's kind of on us not training them well enough mm-hmm. and not bringing this issue. So not really resistance among my my people, but I will say I don't. I, I, I all respect to the FDA, they have a big job, but I they're they're dragging their feet, and mm-hmm. they continue to drag their feet. You know, I told you at the beginning of the show, 1977, 78, they came out and said we need to quit this. Nothing's happened until I think in the last couple of years. There's been some other guidances. The most recent guidance for the animal industry is that, um, well, it'll be three years. In three years, we'll have voluntary withdrawal. Now, that's fine, good. I don't necessarily like voluntary. I will say the FDA has done some good in that they're trying to get all the labels for the antibiotics changed so they can't be in the feed. Mm-hmm. If that happens, then by law, a farmer can't use those antibiotics in feed. And, mm-hmm. and so that's, that's a start. But I think they need to do more. Um, and, and I think that's why I get so, you know, you can hear me. I'm getting a little frustrated about this, but we've got to do more. Russ, let me ask you this. Um, do you see right now when you look in your crystal ball that a voluntary, you know, s- program where where farmers could voluntarily stop using antibiotics is going to be effective enough or or how do you feel about you know, regulating, legislating, and mandating farmers' behavior. I know that that's not always the way that we like things to happen in the Midwest. I grew up in southern Illinois, and that, that kind of rubbed us the wrong way. What do you think is the path forward, Russ? Well, the problem with the voluntary method, and I, mean, I agree with, with Jason on that, it's, it, it's, it's, it's not enough. Yeah, we, we, we pride our, ourselves of being, you know, independent family farmers and whatnot, but but the, but the fact of the matter is, and I kind of alluded to this earlier, that you know almost 90% of all poultry production and, and swine production are in the hands of four or five people, four or five entities. And so it, it you know, and so in other words, you've got farmers that are maybe tending to the livestock and the poultry, but they're mandated. And I know friends, I have a lot of friends that are, for instance, in the, the poultry and the, the hog uh, the contract business that they're mandated to feed these antibiotics and yeah, I mean, they have field people that make that monitor to make sure that you, you run this through the water line. They also there's no transparency as to what they've got into the feed. So yep. you know, you may say that, that that might be an easier thing to do to, to convince four or five major multi global executives to, to to change it. That I you know, I, I think in this particular case, uh, you know, a stick approach is gonna to have to be, be used rather, rather than the voluntary approach. Yep. And I, I don't think it's enough to, to think that, that volunteer 
and we're not asking for a whole lot. I mean, we're not asking for, for you know, farmers, you know, cows are oftentimes used as the poster children to go out saying, hey, they're going to take all antibiotics away. No, we need to, to, to say that, hey, antibiotic usage is a place for it. We're just simply wanting to have a more judicious way to, to use them and, and to, to eliminate the subtherapeutic use. Right, and and that's you said a mouthful, Russ, because we need antibiotics. When yeah. an animal's sick, that's totally appropriate. What we're talking about is the is the use of antibiotics when the animals are not sick, or if they're just so confined that they're hoping that they'll be that this will sort of you know keep them. Uh, somewhat healthy when they're in really what's not a very healthy situation. It's kind of funny to me. I mean, and I'm just a lay person, you know, I'm just at the end of the day, a minivan mom, but it's amazing to me that there's such a disconnect between the sanitation and the, you know, conditions under which our meat production is, is carried out. And, you know, the, the fact that this ends up being the, the food that, that, either ensures the health of our population or diminishes the health of our population. I mean, can you imagine people buying, you know, cereal if they knew that in the cereal plant, the manufacturing plant, you know, there was, you know, feces all over the floor and it was nasty and gross. Nobody would buy that. And it's just amazing to me that we – we we aren't considering the same levels of cleanliness in our food production. I, I just find that kind of amazing. Russ, what's your reaction to that? Well, I you know, hey, when people ask me sometimes what's what's uh, my stake in this and and I gotta I gotta tell you too that the reason that I made my transformation wasn't because I'm the savvy marketer that was chasing this marketing niche. There wasn't such a thing <laughs> back in nineteen eighty nine. I never knew what the heck Whole Foods was, or even what organic meant. I did it because it was the right thing to do. And, and today, I mean, I've you know I've got family and friends, and and uh, you know I, I consider myself a, a food producer, and I consider food a a, a function of life. Mm-hmm. And I and I'm very conscious about that. And so uh, you know it, it 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 does horrify me when when especially when I see the resistance by the industry saying that, hey, you know, hey, this stuff's okay, you know, the, you know don't, don't worry about it. Our food supply is the safest in the world, safest as it's ever been. I mean, I, I take issue with that. I, I don't believe that, you know, con- conventional food, I mean, I think we've got a, a long way to go, and I think we should, we should, as farmers, as industry people, as consumers, say that, hey, we have a conscience, and we should demand that, that we have the safest food supply for our children and for our elderly, for everybody in, in, in all society, and we're, we're just not doing enough, and, and, and I'm appalled by the resistance. Jason, Dr. Newland, you get the last word. We've got about a minute to close. What's your reaction? What's your recommendation? Uh, this this is uh, a problem that's so huge, and and I think your analogy of um, cereal and it, we, would we stand for that? in that production? Would we stand for our hospitals not to have systems in place to make sure that we had clean areas? You know, Our infection control part departments are so huge to wash and make sure people are healthy. It's We have to reduce the use of antibiotics in so many ways. This low-hanging fruit we like to call of having it in the feed needs to be gone. We need to know about that. And so we need to support um, we need to get our legislatures, as much as we know that this is going to take forever to get them to do anything, we need to, to, to talk to them and say, hey, there is a data act. 
that will allow us to know what the antibiotics are being used in the agriculture industry. That act needs to be passed. It's put forth by uh, Henry Waxman and Louise Slaughter. These congressmen and women are, are, are awesome in, in putting this forth. We have to support them in doing that, and we need to tell our congressmen to do that. And then as a whole society, we need to just realize this impact on our health. These drugs were revolutionizing. But you know yep. what? They've only been around 70 years, and now we're already talking about not having them. The end of it. Well, and that's the scary thing. Folks, I hope that you will learn more about this. Google it. Get involved. Thank you so much for what you're doing, Russ and Dr. Newland. Thanks for being on Go Green Radio. Folks, have a great great week. Do something in your life to go green. We're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio and we'll talk to you then. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.